good to be back. Thank you, thank you. It's good to be back, Mr. Mayor, in this former terminal museum. I tell you what, this is a magnificent facade, isn't it? This is uh, — I understand that a uh, few marriage proposals were made by standing in that corner and whispering to someone in the other corner. I uh, — Mr. Mayor, thank you for the passport into the city. Thank you for your friendship. I'm looking around for you. I couldn't see you in the light. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. And thank you for uh, — the Mayor is very good friends with the fellow who uh, — one of the brightest, most decent men I know, who occupies my seat in the United States Senate, Senator Chris Coons. They were Truman Scholars together. And uh, you guys seem like you're cut from the same cloth. Thank you very, very much for your support. I appreciate it, Mr. Mayor. And Kate, you're something else. Now, Kate, uh, you know, I — there's an old joke. I was — a long time ago, a particular senator said to me — this is back when I was much younger. I was in my second term going and running for my secretary. He said, Joe, I'll come, to camp I'll come to Delaware for you and campaign for you or against you, whichever will help the most. My offer still holds. I hope my endorsement didn't hurt you. And uh, — but all kidding aside, Kate, you uh, — we need you in the U.S. Congress. And I really mean it. And the reason I say that is you're a health care advocate, a cancer survivor, a mom, and uh, we need leaders like you representing the people in the first district. People understand what, what's going on every day. The discussions that take place around the kitchen table in the morning where families are still struggling, trying to figure out what to do. And Joyce, thank you for that introduction. I uh, — before I begin, let me say that uh, I'm saddened to hear one of my uh, baseball heroes, Joe Morgan, second baseman, Red's legend, Hall of Famer, and a good man, passed away. And my condolences to the Morgan family and his teammates and to his fans here in Cincinnati and all across the country. He played one year in the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, now, I, I'm going to get myself in real trouble, but I have a bad habit of telling you the truth. I happen to grow up in a household in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where if you wanted to have dinner, you had to be a Yankees fan because that was the farm club, the AAA ball club, the Yankee uh, ball club. And my grandpa was an All-American football player, but he was a great Yankees fan. And uh, — but it wasn't hard back in those days. There was Whitey Ford and a few others. But uh, in Delaware, if you are not a Phillies fan — and let me put it this way. If I were not a Phillies fan, I'd be sleeping alone. Um, my wife's a Philly girl. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I'm not. But uh, Joe actually played for a, for a year in the Phillies, if my memory serves me correctly. And, uh, you know, he had but he had fans all over the country. It's amazing to be both the heart when he was a second baseman and the voice as one of the great baseball announcers in history of the same club. I mean, that, that's an, a pretty incredible accomplishment. And uh, so my best to his family and to his fans. And we have fans all across the country. Folks, uh, as my football coach used to say, it's go time, Joe. It's go time. This is the most important election of our lifetimes. Not because I'm running, because what's at stake 
The next president is going to determine not just the next four years, but what the next decade or more is going to look like because there's such a stark, fundamental difference. And you here in Cincinnati can make all the difference and all the difference in Ohio. I learned a long time ago coming out to Ohio that you went Ohio from Cincinnati North, head north. Well, you are, you are the starting gate. And I love being back here. And again, what a beautiful museum and terminal this is. I spent a lot of time, as I was telling the mayor, in train stations. When I first got elected to the United States Senate, I hadn't been — I was 29. I was in Washington and uh, interviewing my — for staff using uh, Senator Kennedy's uh, whip office. And uh, I got a phone call from a first responder saying my wife and daughter had just been killed and my two boys were really badly injured and not — not sure they were going to make it. My fire department — and God love — I love my fire service. It took about three hours in the jaws of life to get my kids out of the car because they were broadsided by a tractor-trailer. And I didn't want any part of going to the United States Senate. My sister managed my campaign, and uh, younger sister and my much younger brother raised all the money we raised, $187,000. Um, we uh, uh, went to our governor to determine who would they pick in my spot because I didn't plan on going. A lot of really fine men uh, who were in the Senate at the time, and uh, Republicans and Democrats came to me and said, just come and stay for six months and uh, help us organize. And uh, so I started commuting every day, back and forth. And uh, that's how I got involved as sort of Mr. Amtrak, because I uh, — when they published that they keep fastidious records on how many miles you travel on government aircraft when you're vice president. And I had traveled a little over — I think it was a million four hundred thousand miles. It was on the front page of the paper. But I used to like to take the train home on Friday still as vice president because it cost a lot of money to take that small plane back. But in addition to that, um, but this but the Secret Service felt much more secure if I wasn't on a train. But they — they uh, humored me and let me go home on Fridays sometimes. My mom was living at my home. She was passing. And I remember getting on the train, and a guy named Angelo Negria — I got to know their families, all the conductors and all the people all those years. And he came up to me, and he grabbed me and said, Joey, grab my cheek. I thought the Secret Service was going to shoot him. I said, no. I said, he's okay. It's a true story. And he said, I just read Joey, a million three or 400,000 miles on Air Force Two. Big deal. So, you know, the boys and I, we were checking. We were on a retirement dinner. Went up to New Jersey for the dinner. You know how many miles you travel on Amtrak? I said, no, Angie, I don't. He said, Joey. He said, we figure 117 days a year, 36 years, and the next number of days as vice president. You've traveled 2,100,000 miles on Amtrak. I think I hold a record, other than a conductor. And so they gave me a key to the engine, because I could — I'm the only one I know of. I'm not supposed to say that, but I got it hidden. My point is that uh, 
as a sidelight, one of the ways we're going to revive this economy is we're going to end up moving high-speed rail and commuter rail across this country in a way that we haven't done before. And uh, but uh, the reason I went home is the same reason why all you do try to, and that is that to be there in the evening when uh, my kids uh, went to bed in the morning, my son Bo, my son Hunter, and my daughter Ashley, get them back to school in the morning on the way to the station, and then uh, get to, they got older, it wasn't the case, but get to kiss them goodnight. And uh, <laughs> as they kid, I know, Dad, we got to say three Hail Marys and God bless our troops. But so for 36 years, we did this. 250 miles round trip. And uh, folks, you know, it's, uh, it's really one way that I've said this before, and I apologize for the press that travels with me for repeating it. But as I ride home at night, and usually I'd get the, uh, I could get to 7 o'clock, the last fast train, now they call it a cell, it was then called a metro, was at 7 o'clock. And I'd ride, you get outside the Beltway exit, and you ride by all these neighborhoods, and I'd look in the windows and wonder, literally sitting there, looking out the window, what, what are those parents talking about at that dining room table tonight? What are they doing before they put their kids to bed, or right after they put the kids to bed and come back and sit down? My guess is they're talking about the same things that we talked about all across the country, what we're talking about today. They're asking questions of one another as, as profound as they are ordinary. Are we going to be okay? Are we going to make it? Well, what are we going to do? Who's going to tell her we don't have the money to go back to that community college? Who's going to? You got to drive another thousand miles on those ball tires. We just don't have the money right now to get four new tires. This election is about answering those kind of questions. Who's on their side? My dad used to have an expression, for real. My dad, he didn't have work when Cole died in Scranton. My dad was a salesperson. He wasn't a coal miner. My great-grandfather was a mining engineer. But my dad used to say, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay, and mean it. That's a lesson I've never forgotten. It's what I grew up with, surrounded by hardworking families in Scranton, Pennsylvania. When my dad had to move to Delaware, took us on my grandpa for a year. But we finally got down, we got together again, and uh, that's the discussions we had in Claymont and Scranton, like here in Cincinnati. But times are hard. Unemployment is up due to the pandemic. An economic outlook remains very uncertain and very mishandled. Across Ohio and this country, folks are worried about making their next rent payment or mortgage payment, whether or not they're going to be out in the street whether or not they can purchase that prescription drug they need or what, how much food they can put on the table, making hard choices. Worry about whether the school their child is enrolled in is going to be able to be open. Or what do they do if I still have a job, but I have a young child? If I go to work and their school's not open, who takes care of them? How do we do that? 
They see the people at the top doing better and better, even in the midst of this god-awful recession. While they're left to wonder, and I mean this sincerely, they're left to wonder, who's looking out for me? That's Donald Trump's presidency. 215,000 people dead from COVID-19. Experts are telling us we may lose up to another 200,000 lives by the end of January. All because the president is only worried about one thing, the stock market. Because he refused to follow science. It's estimated that we just wore masks, the mask I just took off to speak. Experts tell us we could save between now and the end of the year 100,000 lives. The president knew back in January, I think it was the 28th of January, when the intelligence community kept telling him how serious this pandemic would be. He knew it was extremely dangerous, an extremely communicable disease, airborne. But he didn't tell anybody. But out of his desire to try to get Bob Woodward to write something good about him, he did a long interview with Woodward, a famous journalist. And he went on record, on tape, he's taped as saying, Trump is, that he knew how dangerous this disease was. But he did and said nothing except praise she for the great service he was performing, how transparent he was. Ask yourself, why did he not tell the country? Or what? how much better off would he be had he told the country? He said nothing. He told Bob Woodward that he didn't want to panic the American public. Americans don't panic. Trump panicked. Trump is the one who panicked. His reckless personal conduct since his diagnosis as well has been unconscionable. And the longer Donald Trump is president, the more reckless he gets. Dr. Fauci, the most respected person in this area, in the country, referred to the president's announcement event for the Supreme Court in the Rose Garden as a super-spreader event, publicly criticizing it. And how? How is the president responding? He's running a national ad here in Cincinnati and all across the country, quoting Dr. Fauci out of context. Dr. Fauci said back in March, referring to public health officials, quote, I can't imagine anybody could be doing more, end of quote, referring to public health officials. But Trump and his campaign were very much used to deception and not telling the truth, deliberately lied by putting Fauci in his ad, implying that Fauci was talking about Trump, saying he doesn't know how anybody could do any better. And Fauci, after he saw the ad, he went public. You've probably seen it on the nightly news. 
He came after that and he said, I did not give permission for that quote to be used, and it wasn't about the president. And even after he said that, and the point I listened to your, your, your talk, even after he said that, look what happened. They continued to lie. They said, we're keeping it in the ad. Same ad that says, I'm going to increase taxes on middle-class folks with the same amount of credibility. Look, they use the ad knowing it's a lie. Can you remember any other major mainstream presidential candidate ever doing something like these things? As a consequence of months of overwhelming, lying, misleading, irresponsible action on the part of Donald Trump, how many empty chairs are going to be around the dinner table tonight because of their negligence? How many? How many brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, uncles, aunts, moms, dads are gone? Folks, we're so much better than this. Despite the crises we face, I have an, we have an enormous opportunity, like America's done unlike any other country after every crisis. We've always come out of the crisis stronger than we were before we went in. That's the uniqueness of who we are. We now have an opportunity to build back and build back better, to get everyone a fair return on their work, an equal chance to get ahead, begin to reward work, not just wealth. For example, for communities of color here in Cincinnati and all across the country, the question is, how do we break the cycle? Where in good times, they lag. In bad times, they get hit first and hardest. And in recovery, they're the last and toughest to bounce back. The answer is justice. Justice. Criminal justice. Police reforms. I know this nation is strong enough to both honestly face systemic racism and strong enough to provide safe streets for our families and small businesses that too often bear the brunt of looting and burning, which is never justified. We have no need, though, for armed militia roaming the streets. We should have no tolerance for extremist white supremacist groups menacing our communities. You've been reading what's happening up in Michigan. The governor's a good friend. They're in her driveway with assault weapons standing there because you can open carry in their state, attempting to intimidate. Remember, and I was going to call it a debate, but the shouting match he engaged in? When he was asked by a Fox reporter, not a left-wing somebody or other, would he condemn white supremacy? Never answered the question. I said, what about, well, what about those guys that you, in fact, talk about all the time? Those boys talks about. He said, well, I would just tell them to stand back and stand by. Neighborhoods I worked in the black community in Delaware, that's called a dog whistle. You say 
We should trust American law enforcement authorities to do their job as I do, then let them do their job without extremist groups acting as vigilantes. If you say we have no need to face racial injustice in this country, you haven't opened your eyes to what's been going on in this country and has for a long time. You know, I decided to run for president, and I hadn't planned on it for real, but I decided to run when I saw those folks marching out of the fields in Charlottesville. Close your eyes, remember what you saw on television. These white supremacists, Nazi sympathizers, carrying Nazi flags, flags using the exact same jargon used, anti-Semitic jargon used as it was used in Germany in the 30s, accompanied by the Ku Klux Klan and the Grand Klegel saying, this is why we elected him, and a young woman ends up being killed. And they asked the president, what do you think? He said something no president has ever said. Mark it down, ever said. They're very fine people on both sides. There have been very powerful voices for justice in recent weeks and months. I've spent some time, more than one time, with George Floyd's family and his little daughter, Gianna. And I knelt down to say hi to her, and she said in a soft voice, Daddy, my word, this quote, Daddy changed the world. I also got to know Jacob Blake's mom and dad and the whole family. You know what she said? She said violence didn't reflect her son and that this nation needed healing to stop the rioting, peacefully march, but there's no justification for violence. One of the things that I found, I've been in the civil rights arena for a long time, found pretty moving, was Doc Rivers, the basketball coach, choking back tears. Remember what he said a couple weeks ago? Quote, we're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. We've been hung. Continuing the quote, it's amazing why we keep loving this country, and this country doesn't love us back. Think about that. Think about what it takes for a black person to love America. That is a deep love for this country that for tar far too long has never been fully recognized. You know, Trump talks about the lack of systemic racism. This is the first administration. Ever, we've never met, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, we've never met that standard. But every generation has moved closer and closer and closer to inclusion. This is the first one, elected president, to deliberately try to turn it back in a big way. With all due respect, I think what we need in America is leadership that seeks to de-escalate tensions, to open the lines of communication, and bring us back together to heal and to hope. 
as president, that's precisely what I will do. That's a president's job. It just goes beyond the issue of police-community relations. It goes about being able to compete and build wealth. It's about jobs, good-paying jobs, financial stability, stability, families of color, color building wealth, and being able to pass it down like my Irish Catholic folks were able to do in Scranton coming up for nothing. You build home equity, you got something to pass on. For example, another example is more and more women are dropping out of the workforce in this recession, whether in a city or in the suburbs. I have a plan to deal with this pandemic responsibly, testing, tracing, masking, not politicizing the race for a vaccine. Plan for its safe and equitable distribution. Providing funding for PPE, the protective equipment, and other resources for schools and businesses to be able to reopen safely. If you notice, the President said when he was asked about his responsibility, he said, I take no responsibility. That was a quote. I take no responsibility. No national standard has been set by this administration. Mr. Mayor, you're doing it on your own, or with your governor, or with your others in the community. We have to do so much, and we can do so much. Ease the caregiving crisis for so many families experiencing now. That squeeze between raising your kids while caring for an aged loved one. It's real. Protect your health care in the middle of this pandemic. Why do so many Republicans today have time to hold a hearing on the Supreme Court with 22 days left to go instead of providing significant economic recovery and needs for the people who are hurting so badly, Democrats and Republicans? Think about that. I handled the Recovery Act for our administration. $800 billion in 18 months, with less than two-tenths of one percent waste or fraud. We had an inspector general who looked over everything I did, and I met with twice, once every two weeks. We got $147, $45 billion out to state and localities, so you didn't have to lay off cops firefighters, school teachers, nurses, first responders. What are we doing? Zip. The House acted. The beginning of the summer, the so-called HEROES Act, to pay for all of this. The states are in trouble. I'll tell you why they're not doing anything about it. Two reasons. One, it's all about wiping out the Affordable Care Act, which has been an obsession for this president since he became president. It's an Obama idea. Because their nominee has said in the past that the law should be struck down. 
not as a judge she did this, that's her view. That's going to take health care coverage away from 20 million Americans. Because of his mishandling of the economy and COVID, we've already lost 10 million people have already lost their employer-based health insurance. 10 million. It's going to take away pre-existing conditions coverage for 100-plus million Americans. And complications of COVID-19, like lung scarring, as well as heart damage, could well put how many millions more? There's over 7 million people who contracted COVID in the United States. What happens then? Pre-existing conditions cannot be covered. It's going to toss out the rule that allows children to be covered on their parents' health care until age 26. It's going to take them us backwards when insurance companies could cha charge a woman more for the same exact treatment that they charge a man. When pregnancy once again becomes a pre-existing condition. Folks, we can do so much better than this. Together, we can build on the Affordable Care Act by adding a new, new health insurance option, a nonprofit public option, which is going to give private insurers a real, comp a real competitor. Increase the subsidies so premiums are lower and you can afford plans with lower deductibles and lower out-of-pocket costs. We can only do any of this if the country comes together. Last week, I went to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to the battlefield, where Abraham Lincoln told us that a house divided cannot stand. Today, trust is ebbing. Hope seems elusive. Instead of trying to heal, these policies are ripping us apart. And those Republicans who are willing to cooperate get punished by this president. I refuse to let that happen. We need to revive the spirit of bipartisanship in this country. I know that sounds bizarre in light of where we are. The spirit of being able to work with one another. When I say that, and I said that from the time I announced, I was told that maybe that was the way things used to work, Joe. You got a lot done before, Joe, but you can't do that anymore. Well, I'm here to tell you and say we can. And we must. We're going to get anything done. Democracy requires consensus. I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. There will be no blue states and red states with me. It's one America. I'll work with Democrats and Republicans. I'll work for hard, as hard for those who vote against me as those who voted for me. That's the job of a president, the duty to care, to care for everybody. We can disagree on policy, but you can still care. And you, too, have a sacred duty, in my humble opinion, as my friend John Lewis said before he died and while he was alive. You have a sacred obligation to vote. It matters. Ohio matters. You elected me and Barack in 2008 and 12.
I'm asking for your support. I want to earn. I take nothing for granted. I'm asking for your support for Kamala and me in 2020. I promise we'll always have your back. So please vote. Go to IWillVote.com slash OH now to request your absentee ballot to vote by mail to confirm your early voting location to vote early in person to find your polling place to vote in person on election day just make sure you have a plan as the future congresswoman said bring along family bring along friends make their plans to vote as well no matter what don't let anybody discourage you and tell you your voice won't be counted. It does. Don't be intimidated by talk of having some of these proud boys stand there with their rifles in, in lines where you can open carry to try to intimidate people without saying anything. You, the American people, decide our future. Vote. And I'm convinced you're going to turn out in large numbers. I announced I said I was running to restore America's soul. Well, it's time to restore its soul. It's time to rebuild the backbone of this country, the middle class. This time, bring everybody along, no matter your race, your age, your gender, your religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, everybody gets to come along. It's time to unite America. And we'll do that by choosing hope over fear, science over fiction, truth over lies, and unity over division. There's nothing beyond the capacity of this nation when we stand together. So it's time to stand up, take back our democracy, unite, and let's, for the first time in a while, reflect the values that the vast, America, vast majority of Americans hold. May God bless you, and may God bless our troops. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.